0: Hello and welcome! You're listening to EPIC Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada.
1: My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 35, Thoughts from EMSS 20, a conference review episode. In this episode, we'll be reviewing
0: our experiences at the recent Emergency Management Stakeholders Summit in Edmonton and discussing some of the innovative ideas that were presented in a bit more detail.
1: To this end, we'll be speaking with several of the conference presenters, including Rich Serino, Josh Bowen, Christine Malajek, and Trina Innes.
0: All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. So one of the things I like about... Being in this podcast is, we get to go to interesting events and speak to interesting people. And the EMSS, the Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit that was held at NATE, was no exception. It was really great to see all of these people come down and, and talk about some really interesting ideas. And a little bit of the background of this conference is, uh, it almost didn't happen. So before it was EMSS-20, uh, it was the Alberta Emergency Management Agency Stakeholder Summit. So it really was a government-driven event, and it was about uh, bringing in people for a bit of an update. And unfortunately, this year it got defunded, uh, and luckily, Nate, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, and their emergency management program uh, stepped up and and kind of basically made it happen. So I think this is a great example of partnerships in practice. And uh, luckily, the conference organizers were kind enough to support us by providing a little bit of space to do some of these
1: podcasts. Yeah, the uh, I think the meeting was great. The For those who don't know, Nate has uh, an emergency management program and a beautiful new facility that includes an amazing EOC simulator. Uh, So it was a really kind of cool space to to have this meeting. And we had speakers from uh, not just uh, Alberta, but from uh, uh, across North America, as well as attendees uh, uh, across Western Canada and and, uh, the US as well. So the meeting has definitely expanded beyond being just the Alberta-focused provincial emergency management meeting. And it was... Uh, 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 I think a a big success.
0: That's right. And one of the uh, keynote speakers was Rich Serino, who uh, is affiliated with the National Public Leadership Initiative, which we've covered in previous episodes. And I thought it'd be a great way to start off the podcast today by reviewing his talk at the conference. So, here for your listening pleasure is Rich Serino. Sounds
1: great.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here on the uh, EPIC podcast here in Canada. I'm a Currently a distinguished senior fellow at Harvard University's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. I'm also a senior advisor at MIT's Urban Risk Lab. Uh, prior to that, I had the honor to serve as the country, the United States, uh, eighth deputy administrator of FEMA. I, uh, I served under President Obama, and prior to that I was a uh, chief of the City of Boston Emergency Medical Services, where I rose to the ranks and spent 36, just shy of 37 years at the city of Austin.
0: From your perspective, what does innovation in emergency management look like? How does it manifest? And when is the time to innovate? Now, the time to innovate is always.
2: And I think a lot of people mistake when people say innovation. They also assume technology. And they're actually two separate things completely. People innovate in what we do every single day. In the Chilean mine disaster, if you remember that, People were stuck in the mine for weeks and weeks and weeks. There wasn't a playbook how to get people out of there. They followed the regular procedures and did things safely, but they were innovative in how they were able to, first, make sure they had air and food, but also how they ultimately got them out. So, innovating in time of a crisis, sometimes is the best time to innovate. I'm not saying don't follow
0: policies and procedures, but
2: you have the opportunity in a crisis to do things sometimes you could never do before.
0: One of the other things you chatted about is, is partnerships. We hear all the time, you know, public-private partnerships. You know, you never want to exchange business cards at an emergency. These are all just classic disaster sayings now. How do you make that real? It's a matter of building relationships. It's taking the opportunity, hopefully not in a
2: crisis, but if you haven't done it, utilize the crisis. Um, but it's also just reaching out to people in your community. If there's a large employer in the community, literally reach out to them. You'd be amazed at how many times people say yes, because they want to hear from you. They want to hear if you're a local emergency manager, or a state, or a federal emergency manager. They want to hear from you. Sometimes they, don't, they wouldn't, don't even know who to call. So reaching out to them, you'd be amazed at the answers you get, and building that rapport. But also sharing information with them—it's a two-way street—is looking to say that, you know, historically in government, we want to get more information, want to get more information. But the information we have as emergency managers at all levels is the ability to share that information with the private sector, with the public, with the nonprofits, with academia. Look at how we can share that information, and of course with the public. So, but, but working with the employers in the private sector. They also are the employers of a lot of the citizens in the community, and helping to get your message out from an employer's point of view is helpful as well, whether it's safety tips, what to do in an emergency, and they also have resources.
0: How do you make it stick?
2: It's, again, you have to share information. It can't be one way, because if it's just one way, then it's going to end real quick. Mm. As with any relationship, if it's a one-way Deal, relationship isn't going anywhere. You develop trust, and as you develop trust, you develop those relationships, that's what helps really drive a successful uh, way you're going to be able to work with the public or private sector or other non-profits. It's just the communications and build trust over time.
0: Does that conflict in any way with sometimes this site command post or incident command post mentality of protect, protect, protect? Oh, it's a complete mind change. From the
2: way that for years a lot of us were taught, it's like, well, you know, we're here, we have to use ICS, which we do. But once you get to a certain point, you have to realize you have to share. ICS is great for tactical response, but when you start to look strategically and how you're going to work strategically and across all the various silos, or as we call them, cylinders of excellence, uh, (laughs) it's how you're able to link all those cylinders of excellence together. Um, And that's when you really get to the point where you want to be able to link those together.
0: What do you think of of kind of the state of learning from disasters and what needs to change? I think in in disasters, the after-action reports
2: that we produce do have some nuggets of information. Um, I would not ever use them. as the phone. <laughs> this is exactly what happened. Some after-action reports are perhaps a work of fiction. There are incidents I was at for years where you look at them and you were at this incident you read the after-action report and it's like, was I at that incident? Um, and there's many reasons a lot of the information sometimes get filtered out, taken out. Uh, but the best thing to do is to actually reach out if you want to learn about an incident is talk to the people that were there. Most emergency managers, most first responders, EMS, police, fire, public health folks, if you want to find out what's going on, you, you know what incident to happen, call them, because most of us would love to tell you what happened, especially to share with a peer, somebody in another part of the country, another part of the world, that's going through things to actually share with the lessons that we we'll learned. learn, because quite often they turn into lessons unlearned, mm-hmm. so we don't repeat the same mistakes over and over again.
0: I guess my last question is a, a bit more of a, a personal question, but what keeps you going in this field? I mean, everyone gets in their own way through different uh, avenues, but uh, what has kind of kept you going, and, and why is this field still important to you? And to- well, Because I think
2: it's an opportunity that you have that you can help people. How many jobs do you know that you can actually make a difference in somebody's life? How many jobs where you can not only make a difference in somebody's life, you can help save them? that you can make a difference in your community. And you can help prevent some things. So for the years that I've been doing this, it's about helping people. And you work with some of the best people ever. You meet uh, people literally around the world that have the same common purpose in emergency management or public safety or public health preparedness. And you all have that same mission. And there's that bond of understanding that. So it, for me, you, you,
1: you actually get a lot more to do. Well, it's always interesting hearing somebody with such a, a rich background, uh, you know, share their perspectives. And uh, certainly Rich has a wealth of experience operating um, in, you know, so many different disaster settings. I think the thing that really stuck with me was his uh, emphasis on keeping the the human in uh, in the response in terms of focusing on um, those who are directly impacted, and sometimes it can be easy to get caught up in our own processes and and response uh, priorities so uh, I thought he had some good insights, and uh, obviously many of the lessons that fema has has learned are very applicable to our practice in canada
0: mm-hmm. I think my favorite quote from his talk was never waste a good disaster, and that, that resonates with me. It's great if you can get all these things done beforehand and meet all these people beforehand, but disasters put it all in fast
1: forward. Yeah. The cynic in me also loved his take on after-action reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, calling them out uh, directly as being often works of fiction. Um, I mean, we've talked about this before, but uh, how long are we gonna have these, you know, pretty narratives in the after-action reports and never actually implement the the lessons? So, uh, he did a good job of critiquing that and uh, talking about the importance of maybe having um, some broader input into after-action reports, not just having a beer's response focus, but actually having the the uh, population. Uh, who are impacted, involved. Speaking of innovation and
0: learning, uh, we also got a chance to catch up with Josh Bowen, who is the the manager of CADEM, or that Centre of Applied Disaster and Emergency Management at Nate. So one of the very cool things we got to do was go through their uh, disaster simulation lab. But for a little bit of background before we we talk about that, here is Josh Bowen to explain what CADEM is all about and why it fills a gap in the EM sphere.
3: Hi, my name is Josh Bowen. I'm the manager for the Centre for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management at NAIT, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. Prior to joining NAIT, I spent 13 plus years in the Canadian Armed Forces uh, and went to a number of disasters uh, in Canada as direct support and uh, eventually ended up as the Deputy Director of Disaster Response Planning for Western Canada
0: so we're here at this conference which is talking about bridging public and and private relationships and you mentioned that you're you're putting some work into this new center what is that going to look like and what gap is it going to fill uh, in our EM profession
3: so this the center is founded on the belief that resilient communities and organizations are built in collective training and professional development settings before a disaster happens so the idea is really let's bring people together from all the different sectors, uh, all different organizations, all different backgrounds. Bring them together for training so that you're actually getting best practices and understanding, learning. But the biggest part of it is really building that network so that you know who to call. You've already started to build trust before you actually have to to rely on people that you may never have met before.
0: Quite often that's achieved hopefully through exercises and such. Is this Mm -hmm. Kind of the idea is this is a physical location where you can host your exercise.
3: What we're really focusing on uh, is professional development training uh, in terms of, of education, so one-day courses, three-day courses. We're developing an online program offering that's going to provide professional development that's going to be be highly accessible for carrying on and getting your professional designations, but also running training exercises uh, both on-site in our our new emergency operation simulation lab, or on site at, at the client's location or, or the organization that requires training. And everything that we do is, is underpinned by our professional best practices portfolio, which is really going and saying, we learned a whole lot about interface fires from, from Slave Lake, from Fort Mac, from high level now. But what do we learn around the world? What's Australia taking as best practice? What's coming out of South Africa? What's coming out of Mexico? What's coming out of the States? What's everybody learning and what are those key things that we need to know from a global perspective? Packaging that and saying here's the top 10 things that you need to know when you're facing this kind of hazard or if you're this kind of community or uh, if you want to know about crisis communication. Having that database that says right here's the things that you need to know
0: right away um, so that we actually are able to have lessons learned. So there are several centres around Canada for the academic side of things and research and and those collections of lessons learned. What makes this one different? What is the applied part of it? So Nate's a polytechnic,
3: which really means a few things. One, everything we do is about hands-on, skill-based education. The second is that everything we do is industry-driven. Every program, every centre at NATE has an advisory council uh, with stakeholders from industry, from the public sector, from the people who are actually doing the job right now. Uh, This is informed by the entire community of practice and now we're able to pass that on uh, and develop Mm -hmm. to push and to advance the, the profession as much as possible.
0: From my perspective, that's one of the big things that we've been exploring on the podcast and seems to be contentious in emergency management is really that gap between the academic and the applied, not just in the theory versus reality, which that gap will always exist, but more in the credentialing and the kind of rising sort of wave of the new emergency manager with all these letters behind their names and the old emergency manager with all the years behind their, their name. Is that one of the purposes, is to build that relationship? Absolutely, yeah.
3: uh, and and like you said, there are some people who have phenomenal wealth of experience and don't necessarily have the academic background, uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know where we've been, they know how we got here, and then there's a group that's been studying the theory and knows where we think we need to go. So let's bring those groups together and truly allow for a mentorship opportunity and, and some engagement.
0: You said bringing in those key players, I think Nate, I think students is this just for the students or is this something for everybody?
3: Nate has a diploma program for emergency management. It's a two-year diploma program. It's incredibly robust and that's really targeted at students who are who are looking at getting into emergency management. What we're doing with the Center for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management is focusing on the professionals that are currently doing the work and then bringing in some students uh, or people who are curious about emergency management, bringing in senior politicians who need to know because they've just been elected, and pooling those people so that we're building that resilient community.
0: So part think tank, part sim cell, and part uh, community hub. Sounds amazing. Sounds like just what we need for emergency management. Uh, Where can we go to find out more or get involved?
3: You can go to nate.ca slash c-a-d-e-m Center for Applied Disaster Emergency Management, or CADEM as we like to call it. Or if you're looking for some specific training, um, we're running an Incident Management Team Academy in the fall, and you can go to nate.ca slash imtacademy.
1: It's well, pretty neat facility. Uh, we we had a chance to see it up front and and interact with some of the uh, the smart boards and the various uh, displays that they have in the EOC, which I have to say is is probably one of the nicer EMC, uh, EOCs I've ever been in. I really like the idea of how Cadem's trying to partner with industry and um, even offering their EOC as a backup location, which is I haven't heard of anybody else doing before. So you get trained and, and do exercises through CADEM, and then whatever your primary EOC is, you can then use this facility as a, uh, a backup EOC if you had some uh, disruption.
0: Yeah, and it's, it, it's kind of reimagining educational institutions' role in disaster as well. It's like, sure, we have to uh, cater to the students and develop the next generation of emergency managers, but we also know that schools, big or small, always play a role in disaster. The schools as public buildings often serve as temporary emergency operations center or temporary housing. Uh, and universities, as we know, are incredibly complex and must be protected uh, during disaster. So I thought it was really neat that this is kind of taking it to the next step. And instead of having it as a secondary duty, this is now its primary function. You know, the, they have this, this center and this space and this uh, dedicated staff simply for improving disaster
1: management. Yeah, and and maybe just through the uh, magic of radio here, I'll paint the picture for those who haven't had a chance of seeing it up front. Uh, Imagine going into a room that has uh, screens and on all four walls, um, as well as uh, projectors that can actually simulate the outside environment. So uh, when we went in, they were simulating the surface of Mars, but they could have any other uh, kind of area um, uh, simulated in this uh, EOC setting. And then a series of high-tech and low-tech display boards, uh, meeting spaces, uh, breakout uh, areas, um, and a very, you know, purposefully set up to uh, stimulate collaboration and communication. And then attached to that is uh, the control room. And that's where if you think of a, uh, you know, like a sim cell it's attached and they can you know through a one-way glass kind of see everything that that's happening and provide all the inputs and real-time changes and and modify the scenarios as well as give feedback to simulations so this space can be used both as a real eoc but also as a a a learning you know learning lab and uh, similar to anybody with a healthcare background you may have been involved in high fidelity simulation where they have uh, mannequins acting as patients this is that same kind of idea it's really trying to make an immersive of experience where somebody opposed to just, you know, sitting through an EOC course, this is a place where you can actually get a a real world exercise done and and get that learning, which is so valuable. They also do happen to have a a healthcare facility set up next to it, which also has the ability to simulate like a field hospital or an ICU and and that sort of thing. So a lot of interesting things you could do with this space. Um, And the building itself, brand new building beautifully laid out which also has um, uh, meeting spaces and other areas that you could use to support the main EOC area other meeting areas so uh, a really beautiful facility
0: really neat piece of infrastructure and speaking of infrastructure we also got a chance to catch up with Christine Malajek whose main topic was the link between uh, failing infrastructure and infrastructure problems and the social determinants of health as they apply to disaster preparedness and risk reduction
4: my name is Christine Malajek, my paid day job is the Director of Risk Management for the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. We are um, an organization that represents uh, town, cities, uh, summer villages across Alberta, also I volunteer with our local risk management society, Uh, I'm now for the fourth term the president of the Northern Alberta Risk and Insurance Management Society, I also sit as the public member for the Alberta College of Pharmacy, Uh, but I'm also a very active mom and community member as well.
0: Sounds like a lot of those roles have to do with risk and risk management. There's about a million different ways of defining risk that I've come across. What is the way that you define risk functionally for Canada?
4: Um, I'm a big fan of the ISO 31000 standard definition, and that risk is the uncertainty on to objectives. And so that, that is certainly scalable from small objectives to large strategic objectives. And with that being said as well, it also fits into other ISO standards that we use here at Um, in our emergency management industry. So uh, 9,000, 27,000, and a few others that have to deal with um, resiliency, disaster recovery, emergency management, and so on. So we're all using the same language. I really
0: like that definition uh, because it brings it down to what you can control a little bit and setting those objectives. So one of the things you talked about in your talk was understanding who's setting them and how they're setting them. And it has such a huge impact on the choices that are made and the actions that are taken to either mitigate risk or not. Your opening statements kind of scared me a little bit, Uh, had to do with infrastructure. So (laughs) Gulp, what is the state of our infrastructure?
4: Uh, 2019 was the first year that the World Economic Forum uh, added um, aging infrastructure onto their list of uh, risks for the year. So it's a global problem, Um, and as mentioned, sometimes it takes a little while for it to kind of trickle down and make some attention uh, where we live here, but I think more than ever it's starting to become prevalent in our day-to-day uh, management, especially within uh, municipalities. A lot of those who are here today at uh, the Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit either work in uh, protective services in some capacity or they work uh, in emergency uh, management or uh, emergency services for a municipality. and. Back in 2016 there was a a report put out that um, about 60% of the infrastructure in Canada is owned by municipalities but they receive a fraction of the dollars to um, maintain them and to uh, develop them. Uh, We don't foresee in the next little while an abundance of money coming anyway uh, anyway and uh, so we have to figure out how we're going to continue to maintain the infrastructure that we have.
0: What I really liked about your talk was how you connected infrastructure aging infrastructure the infrastructure gaps directly to the social determinants of health can you talk about that a little bit
4: absolutely so uh, municipalities are a corporation by statute and they're in the business of delivering services to those who live in it and um, a safe and healthy and vibrant community uh, tends to be much more resilient when things happen. And so we talked, to, we kind of framed it in the tale of two cities. So, um, kind of comparing and contrasting Katrina sure, to sure. Wood Buffalo. And there were some things that made a remarkable difference uh, in how each of those municipalities bounced back. And a lot of it did have to do with the social determinants of health. And so, when we take a look at um, the evacuation process, Um, Wood Buffalo is an industrial community. Their um, industry was heavily integrated into their municipality. Uh, It's a safety-oriented community. They were used to doing fire drills and other safety procedures. Uh, Whereas I think in New Orleans, they didn't really have that same type of benefit. Um, We also take a look at kind of like the mean income and the mean education. Uh, In Wood Buffalo, you had a higher mean income, so people had the means to be able to evacuate. Whereas in uh, New Orleans, there was a great income disparity, so those who had the means to go left. Those who who didn't stayed, and there was a lot of consequence. Um, Even something as simple for the the residents of Wood Buffalo, uh, as they came down to Edmonton, understanding that trauma affects children in a a much different way, the arts community came together and and helped to provide programming uh, and uh, other um, options to help uh, alleviate some of that traumatic burden for children. So, as we take a look at the social determinants of health, having the community being a safe, healthy, vibrant community to start with Increases its likelihood of survival if something were to happen that could be by natural disaster, economic disaster and so forth.
0: So uh, what's, the, what's the cost of, of doing nothing and, and how do we manage this risk and move forward?
4: Well, I I believe this is really a pay today or pay tomorrow um, scenario. So there there are some things that we can do today that uh, either might be reasonable or low cost or kind of like a a cheap and cheerful type of solution. So we talked a little bit about um, we're probably not going to get money for new buildings, but there's things that we could do to help target, harden them. Uh, Just being incredibly mindful that um, the community plays a big part of that resiliency as well. So making sure that as we pass along the 72 hours message to those who live in uh, our communities, that we're also working with the business community as well. Because if the business community has business continuity and disaster recovery plans, and that they're incredible, incredibly mindful as well about some of the hazards in their area, when we start to repatriate or re- repair uh, our municipalities after something happens, having the businesses bounce back certainly increases the likelihood of um, municipality uh, getting back to its, its pre-event state.
1: Sounds like a great interview.
0: Yeah, it it was neat to see risk reframed. There are just so many different definitions of risk and different risk professions, all of which are valuable, all of which are different. But when it comes down to it, what the shift we've seen with disaster management is away from the objective or external uh, risks and onto the risks that we control, which are within our organizations. So I like that. uh, societal and organizational resilience approach to defining risk and and kind of taking it into our
1: own, own hands in the way that we uh, we manage ourselves yeah, and the social determinants of health if you haven 't had a chance to review them recently uh, you know so important to what we do um, and i I would like to see them actually reflected a bit more. Specifically in some of our plans, I think uh, a hazard matrix, for example, if you don 't identify those initial uh, vulnerabilities um, we're missing a, a big part of uh, what we 're trying to you know work towards
0: yeah, I think that overall you know disaster management is a profession of convergence, and I think there's a lot we can take from all sorts of different disciplines. One of the other big themes of the conference was about climate action and combating climate change and integrating that into disaster management practices. You had a chance to talk
1: with uh, Trina Innes about this. I did, yeah. Here's a quick snippet of our conversation.
0: Okay.
5: uh, Well, I'm Trina Innes. I'm the director of the Municipal Climate Change Action Centre. The centre is a collaborative initiative of the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association and the Rural Municipalities Association. In terms of what we do, we exist to help municipalities put in place energy efficiency and renewable energy solutions to help reduce their operating costs and reduce our impact on the climate.
1: Climate change is is definitely talked about a lot in in terms of the Sendai framework and the Disaster Risk Reduction Platform that Canada is a part of. At a more practical level for municipalities, what are some of the actual things that are happening right now in terms of uh, municipal involvement in, in combating climate change?
5: Well today I talked about four ways that climate mitigation can benefit emergency response. Solar energy efficiency. Electric vehicles and energy management solutions. Solar can be looked on as a source for emergency power, and the longer it takes to restore the grid, the better the case for solar solutions, uh, especially in places like community centers or fire halls where we want to keep operations going. Uh, Electric vehicles, we can look at them uh, more as a source of power because if you can imagine an electric vehicle has a battery, It can drive to a place that perhaps uh, isn't accessible by traditional fuels because the fuel pumps aren't working. And they can supply power, uh, charging cell phones, charging emergency equipment, things like that. Uh, Energy efficiency, any solutions that minimize the effects of heat and cold and reduce the load on the electrical grid through energy efficiency upgrades can really help in emergency response. People have a place they can go for heating and cooling uh, in extreme weather events like uh, heat waves or cold snaps. And then the last one, energy management. Uh, any work that an emergency manager can do with an energy manager to ensure that energy can continue to be supplied, electricity can continue to be supplied. Uh, and and upgrading buildings or infrastructure so they continue to operate in an emergency is, is something that energy management, energy managers can help with.
1: Do you think it helps at all with the larger goals of resilience? Is there a natural connection there?
5: Absolutely. Any work that we can do that protects our buildings, infrastructure, helps people, weather through the storms that are yeah. coming, uh, is really important and part of c- community resilience. Um, Drawing the connections between climate mitigation and emergency response is a a little bit of a a new way to look at reasons to get engaged in climate mitigation and adaptation work. It it is a co-benefit of uh, doing work in this space. Um, And one of the things that was really neat was having people think about vehicles, not worrying about, oh, how are they going to get charged if the power goes off in an emergency? But, hey, how are we going to move that power to people who need it?
1: Well, that certainly ties into what emergency managers do best, which is thinking of kind of creative solutions to unusual problems. Any final takeaways that you'd like uh, listeners to know about?
5: Sure. Well, uh, through the uh, Municipal Climate Change Action Centre, we have funding to help municipalities get involved in this space. So anything to do with solar, retrofitting, uh, recreational facilities, subsidizing the cost of an energy manager, we have programs to help with that. So we would love to have people Call us to learn more. People can find us online at mccac.ca.
1: Trina had some interesting points about how we can actually use uh, some of the adaptations that we're seeing right now as, uh, as something during the response phase of a disaster. And I thought that was kind of innovative.
0: Yeah, her whole thing with the electric cars being a capacity that can be used instead of a risk, which is kind of how we think about it now, got me thinking about that future focused capacity assessment. Don't just look at what you've got now. Look at what is coming up. Uh, look at what is, is next and start thinking about how that can be used. So overall, an incredible conference. We didn't get a chance to speak to um, everyone, uh, or at least in a recorded fashion. Uh, what else stood out for you?
1: Yeah, well, I really enjoyed the variety of speakers. We've got a few other interviews which will be kind of trickling out over the coming weeks. Uh, one of the ones I, th- I thought was uh, quite interesting was um, actually an interview about the untapped resource of food banks. So not to give too much away for, for a future episode, but uh, essentially food banks uh, have been really having a, a, a new role in emergency management in terms of some of the major responses they've been involved with in Canada. Traditionally, the the teaching was always to stay away from you know food banks because they su- support the most vulnerable and we wouldn't want to take away um, you know anything from a vulnerable population. But actually, the robustness of uh, food banks is quite impressive, and especially when they're networked together. So we spoke with um, uh, someone from Food Banks Alberta who was able to uh, kind of explain a little bit about how food banks are now being much more involved in emergency management and. Um, you know, really a new player in the field. And that Food Bank talk was given by Stephanie Walsh Rigby. So uh, stay tuned for that.
0: Awesome. You know, on my part, one of the talks that really stood out was given by Josh Morin, and it was about finding a place for directors of emergency management or just emergency management in general. You know, this is something that Canada struggled with from the beginning of time. Where does emergency management fit? How is it housed legislatively and within municipalities? And although the focus was on Alberta, I think it's applicable across Canada. The different places that you find directors of emergency management is is so vast yeah. <laughs> and confusing that it's, it's really hard to some even... Some in uniform, some not in uniform. Yeah, some yeah. some under protective services, yeah. some under their own uh, umbrella, some yeah. volunteers. like yeah. It's just a complete mixed bag. And he did a little bit of a kind of a survey review of the different ways that directors of emergency management exist and, and where this is housed, and a bit of a pro and con of each of them. Some of the things that really stuck out for me was his review of the kind of contract provider uh, lens. You know, you just can't delegate away your accountability. You cannot pay someone to prepare for you, and that's just the way it is. So he was critical of that, rightfully so, I think. Uh, but there's probably a role that uh, contractors can, can play in, in boosting your preparedness. You just can't delegate it away. One of, one of his interesting um, concepts was about that uniform for the directors of emergency management. And he was anti-uniform, which was kind of a fresh perspective, I, I thought. Uh, in fact, he was answering a question about how do you integrate into the community? How do you make yourself approachable? And uh, his answer was, well, on day one of my job, when I got handed the fire uniform or whatever uniform to wear, he just flat out said, I'm not wearing that. I'm a director of emergency management, not a first responder. So he was he was very clear about that. Um, I know that's a controversial uh, a topic, but it resonated with me because we do need to find our own identity. Uh, and, and, you know, first response is its own thing, very important, but it's not it's not disaster management. Yeah.
1: Well, we had that epic uh, poll on Twitter a, a few months ago where we, we asked people where they best thought uh, uh, you know, emergency management should be housed in, in structures, and we saw a huge variety of responses. So I think that's definitely um, something which uh, uh, there's a lot of variability. Uh, another speaker I really enjoyed was uh, Donna DuPont um, from Purple Compass, and she spoke a little bit about what exactly... Uh, foresight and strategic thinking is. And and it was an interesting introduction talk basically talking about the difference between forecasting and foresight. And if you haven't heard those terms before, uh, stay tuned. We'll be having another episode uh, digging a little bit deeper into that uh, down the road. But a new way of looking at uh, complex problems. So obviously that's going to be of use to emergency managers.
0: All of this was a little bit of a, about future-focused and, and putting yourself in the solutions realm instead of just the, the analysis risk realm. Probably my favorite talk, or at least one of my favorite talks, was given by Dr. Gifford. And if you haven't heard of Dr. Gifford, he is a real-life dragon slayer. Uh, he's come up with these seven species or genres of, of, uh, of dragons of inaction. So he's a climate psychologist, which... I have to admit, is a profession I wasn't aware of uh, (laughs) before this talk. But uh, he talks about the reasons why people do not act. And this is just so applicable to disaster preparedness and disaster emergency management. And uh, there are just so many, there's like 38 dragons that he talked about and 38 different reasons that people don't act. Uh, One of them that stuck out for me was tokenism. Uh, You know, I've done this one thing. He uh, very inadvertently, because he's not a disaster manager, uh, manager. he talked about putting that one can of beans in the basement and thinking you're prepared. Right. And I just clicked, it's like, oh, that's the 72 hour kit. It's a token of, of, of prior preparedness. Debate. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's a token of preparedness that doesn't necessarily reflect uh, true preparedness and certainly isn't enough to, to drive um, disaster change. Yeah, no. yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, a uh, great conference overall. I'd encourage people to check out more about uh, Nate's Centre for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management if you haven't already. Definitely a, a nice new resource for emergency managers in Canada.
0: I thought a nice way to close out this podcast would be to play Josh Bowen's closing address for the conference, the Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit 2020.
3: This has been a, a fantastic couple of days uh, and there's been some really good lessons learned from, from our side of the house, but I think all the way around. So really from, from my perspective, sitting back, being able to pop in and out and disrupt every single uh, session, what really came out of this was, was three themes. The first one being innovation, new ideas, new ways to use old ideas, leverage the things that we already know. The second one is really about relationships. Uh, forming those new relationships, learning from other people, being able to draw on the expertise that we have here in Alberta, which is the third theme, and it's that the capacity to respond to these major disasters, the largest ones in Canada, we, we own seven of them, exists here in Alberta. So being able to leverage that capacity is huge and it's here. We have demonstrated so many times in this province that we are resilient. Our communities are resilient. Our organizations are resilient and our people are resilient. And that's because of the work that everybody here is doing. So thank you very much for that.
0: And that's all for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Just before we go, I do want to thank our sponsors. Uh, This episode was sponsored in part by ATB. ATB understands that sometimes we all need a boost. That's why they started ATP Boost R, a crowdfunding platform for small businesses. So if you have an idea or want to test it with a crowd, Boost R can help you raise funds and grow to expand them in the community. Whether you're a cafe in need of a new espresso machine or a boutique wanting to open a new location, check out atbboostr.ca to find out more.
1: And speaking of new ideas, uh, we'd like to thank everybody who submitted ideas for future episodes, uh, especially at the conference. So we are uh, working in the background at those and and stay tuned for some crowdfunded ideas for That's our right. future episodes. Um, we'd also like to acknowledge uh, the Alberta Podcast Network. So uh, the APN, uh, which we're a member of, is a collaborative group of talented individuals working to make your drive to work a bit more bearable. Today, we'd like to give a special shout out to the podcast, Let's Find Out, who have been kind enough to record a little promo, which we'll play for you right now. Hi, I'm Chris Schengen-Phillips. I host a show called Let's Find Out, where we try to have fun learning about history here in Edmonton. We investigate local myths. Because I think
4: the bridge is so iconic, the fact that they've kind of gone
1: unrecognized. It's a little bit sad. We do taste tests. It's such a good color. Cheers. And right now we're doing a whole season about how humans and nature have shaped each other here in Empton.
5: Grizzly bears used to be largely a prairie species
0: as well. Find us at letsfindoutpodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. And that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening to Epic Podcast. And a huge thanks to Rich Serino, Josh Bowen, Christine Malajek, and Trina Innes for sharing their time and expertise with us on the respective conference topics. And also a big thank you to Nate for hosting uh, all, and all the conference organizers who made this happen. Uh, and especially to TC Energy who actually donated their uh, conference booth to us so we could have a presence in the
1: conference. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ETV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a
0: supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests
1: may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast.
0: Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian.